there. We'll be able to sing together. You'll witness live baptisms. We'll study God's Word, and we'll give you the latest information and impact on this worldwide virus. Please join our congregation as we pray for the Lord's mercy and a quick resolution to this unprecedented situation. And don't forget, again, the website is communitybiblechurch.us. May God protect you and your family. WAGP Buford. This is the Bible Line a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. What a day this is in our nation as people are struggling with how to deal with this virus and all that goes with it. But if you are a first-time listener and you have questioners, questions that you'd like to ask, whether it's about the crisis we're in or about what you're studying in a passage of Scripture, what we typically do in this hour is people email in their questions or they call us live. And the live number again is 843-525-1859. And if you do call in directly here into the studio, you can either go on the air or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. Uh, You can also email us here directly at TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Well, Rick, um, let me just say to our listeners, if you do not have a church home and you would like to live stream our services, uh, you can do so on Sunday morning at either 9.15 or 11 o'clock, 9.15 or 11 and we uh, can be heard through what are all the avenues, Rick, that we're using right now? Well, we're available on Facebook. You simply go to your Facebook account, type in um, CBCBFT uh, in the search category, and that'll bring the Community Bible Church webpage uh, or our Facebook page. On our website, it's communitybiblechurch.us, and you can slash live. You can put slash live after that to get to our exact live presence there. And of course, we're um, also available on Roku and Apple TVs. You just, if you haven't yet downloaded the Community Bible Church app, you just go to your Roku or Apple device and go to the respective stores and do a search for Community Bible Church US and uh, you'll find us there. All right, Rick, I think we've had several questions come in. So let's go ahead and we'll jump in with both feet and we'll get started. And again, if you want to call us Direct, the phone number is 843-525-1859. Our first caller would like to know the following. Suppose there is a pastor who is living right and is a good man, but he just can't preach, therefore is not winning people to Christ. Should he be encouraged to step aside? Well, I suppose a lot depends on the uh, situation and the community that he's in. Uh, Let me just say parenthetically that ideally, if someone serves in the office of pastor-teacher, 
that they have a speaking gift, and there are several. There's the gift of um, pastor-teacher. There's the gift of pastor. Those are two distinct gifts. Uh, There's the gift of exhortation, and so there's a number of speaking gifts that God gives in the New Testament. There's the gift of prophecy, not in a a predictive sense, but in a forth-telling sense. Um, So there are various speaking gifts that someone might fill the pulpit with. But unfortunately, sometimes there are pastors who uh, serve in the ministry, but they're really not gifted and called by God to serve in the office of pastor. Sometimes they just assume because there's a passion to serve God, maybe in a full-time capacity, that they should serve as a pastor of a local assembly. Um, But that's not always the best thing for either them or for the congregation. And so one of the things that ideally someone would want to do is discover what their spiritual gift is and then to match a ministry that best suits that. And by the way, if you're listening um, and you're unaware, I have a spiritual gifts test that I've written, 128 questions. I did my doctoral dissertation. It was entitled The uh, Discovery and Implementation of spiritual gifts in the local church. And so I created an inventory where you answer these questions and it will score you on the computer at searchthescriptures.org and it might give you a flavor of what your spiritual gift is. It's not a definitive test, but it is certainly a good uh, starting place for many. Um, The challenge is that sometimes people will take that test And they'll say, you know, I didn't really score high in anything. And what that usually indicates is that they're a young Christian or maybe a Christian who's been a believer for a long period of time, but they've never grown. You know, when you hold a newborn baby in your arms, you don't know if this person is going to be artistic, if they're going to be able to sing, if they're going to be athletic until they grow and develop. But within their little body that God created He wove them together with particular natural talents that he gave them through uh, their parents at physical birth. Well, likewise, when you have a spiritual birth, on the moment, uh, the day you're converted, you're given a spiritual gift. But unfortunately, a lot of Christians stay baby Christians, and so their spiritual gift never really manifests itself. That's why it's important that we're growing Christians. If Dr. Billy Graham was right, he said 90 to 95% of the true believers in America have never grown up. They've stayed baby Christians. And unfortunately, sometimes because they're not being fed, and sometimes they're not being fed because the guy behind the pulpit shouldn't be there. And he's not gifted to teach the Word of God. Now, again, I say circumstances in that there are places in the nation where there are no available pastors. And you have at least one man who cares enough who, who says, well, nobody else wants to do it, so I'll do it. And at least there's a place for people to come together. And, and God can sometimes bless, you know, he blesses his word because it's alive. And so if the man knows enough to at least get people into the text of the Bible, that's a huge, huge blessing. But he also has to have, though, a degree of spiritual maturity, And I say that because that's the qualification for an elder, and the qualifications for an elder that Paul gives in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are all things that we should aspire to as believers. They're really marks of maturity. So Paul is basically saying you have to be a mature Christian to stand in the pulpit. And so if you have a mature Christian with the gift of administration, he's probably going to be boring, and he's not going to be 
you know, have a, a passion in his bones to preach the word of God. So it's not an ideal setting. But again, there are places in the country where that's all you have, and God chooses to use that person. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was converted over the stumbling of a lay person who ended up taking the pulpit one Sunday morning because of a snowstorm, and he heard the gospel and was wondrously converted. But no, uh, if you have a guy who's really not called and gifted, uh, ideally you should find someone else to fill that because the health of the whole congregation is at stake when that happens. All right, great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right, Wes from Port Royal writes, in Colossians 1.24, in talking about his suffering for Christ, Paul uses the phrase, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in the NASB and similar wording in the ESV. I believe the context is Paul talking about rejoicing and suffering because the, of the furtherance of the gospel that is resulting from that suffering. Also, I know that Christ's death and affliction was perfect and complete payment for our sins. So what does Paul mean by the word lacking? Well, it's a, it's a great question, and context is everything. And this verse has been abused, especially by our Roman Catholic friends uh, let me uh, start reading here in Colossians 1 and verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So he's speaking here about our salvation. He's speaking here of our conversion, our redemption, and it's not based on uh, human effort or human works. It's through the work of Christ. He said earlier in this chapter in verse 13 that he, meaning Christ, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have uh, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so it is through the work of Christ that we who were formerly alienated here in verse 21 and hostile in mind and engaged in evil uh, we were brought back to God. We were reconciled. The word reconciled is, uh, you know, one of uh, five or six key words that every believer should know. You should know what the word justified, reconciled, propitiated, uh, these regenerated, uh, born again. There are certain salvation words that you need to know as a believer because they say a lot about who God is and what he has done for us. So the term reconciliation is a word that describes two people that were in hostility and brought into peace with one another. So because of our sin, we were at hostility with God. Why? Because he's holy and he is just and his anger burns towards sin. But God is also loving. You can't separate the attributes of God. He's equally loving as he is just. And of course, if you emphasize one attribute of God over another, you present a distorted view of God. So some people emphasize the justice of God, like he just wants to hammer you into the ground, but that he's not really kind and gracious and loving. And some people emphasize the love of God to the exclusion that he is just. Well, the justice and love of God kissed on the cross, and that through the blood of Christ, we are able to be made blameless. So you were reconciled, you were made friends. So we were in a back-to-back relationship, and that's why Paul says in Romans 5 that we were God's enemies, but he reconciled us in his, in Jesus's fleshly body through death. 
Um, remember, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. The writer to the Hebrews says, once for all time, Christ died for our sin. So as Christ hung on the cross, he became the object of God's wrath. Uh, the sin of all time was laid upon him. All the people in the Old Testament who lived, you know, for millennia before Jesus ever stepped out of heaven onto earth had the same problem we have. They could not get into heaven by being good, by human effort, by any kind of sacrifice or anything else that they might do. They could only be brought into a right relationship with God through the work of the Messiah. Now, they're standing on the other side of the cross, so to speak. They're looking forward to the promises that God would fulfill. In beginning in what we call the Proto-Evangelium, it's a Latin uh, catchphrase, the first gospel, uh, which is found in Genesis 3.15, beginning in Genesis all the way through Malachi, God writes of a coming Savior. And even in the book of Barashit in Hebrew, it means beginnings at Genesios in uh, Greek. And so we we take the titles of our books from the Septuagint, whereas in the Hebrew Bible, uh, they use different titles, same book. Remember, the titles are no more inspired to a book of the Bible other than, say, Revelation 1, where the title is given. Um, they're no more inspired than the chapter and verse divisions. They're just there to help us to find our way around it. And so uh, in the in the beginning, Barashit, uh, that's what this book is called in the Hebrew Bible. We go with the Septuagint, and we use the word Genesis in English, Genesis. It's the book of beginnings. So even in the book of beginnings, God, through type, illustration, and prophecy, uh, unfolds the coming work of the Messiah. So they were looking forward to what God was going to accomplish in the Messiah. We look back at what he has done, but the the need is the same. And so he says that we were reconciled in his fleshly body. Why? That we could be made holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So it's in that context that Paul says, look, God made me a minister of the gospel to proclaim this message. And then in verse 24, he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. For in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Uh, Some of your translations say afflictions. Now, remember, Colossians is a um, written from a Roman jail. It's written around 60, 61 A.D. Uh, We know from the book of Philemon that Epaphras Epaphras came to the Apostle Paul when he's there in Rome to serve him during his time of imprisonment. And we also know that Tychius uh, took this letter that he wrote and brought it to the Colossians. So Paul is suffering, so to speak, in a Roman prison, and it's not a pleasant prison. I was in Rome once on an occasion where I was able to see what at least is the traditional site, and there's good evidence because it was a first-century prison. Uh, That's a well-affirmed fact, and it appears to be the very one the apostle Paul would be in, and they were not pleasant pleasant places by any example. So whether it was the literal prison or just a first century example, he's suffering. It's not like an American prison where it's air conditioned and you have color TV and you know all the little comforts of home. But the word here for sufferings or afflictions is the Greek word thalipis, 
and it's the word that is often translated uh, tribulations. It's never, ever used in reference to the sufferings of Christ on the cross, uh, but it is used in reference to the tribulations or the sufferings or the afflictions that Christ experienced during his earthly ministry, and it's also used of the tribulations that Christ promised his believers would know. In the world you shall have philipsis, tribulations, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So there are tribulations, and technically, while all tribulations are trials, not all trials are tribulations. And so there is actually a distinction in the New Testament between a trial and a tribulation. A tribulation refers to suffering that comes upon you as a believer for living for Jesus Christ. And all of us, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If we live a godly life, we're going to be persecuted. You say, does that mean they're going to take me out and stone me? Probably not. Most of the persecution, at least in this part of the world, is not physical in nature, though it could be. Uh, But most of the tribulation that comes upon the believer in this country are things that people say about you. Uh, Beware if all men speak well of you, for so they spoke of the false prophets who went before you, Jesus said, as recorded in Luke. Blessed are you when men say all sorts of evil against you, he said, on account of me, not for being obnoxious. Some Christians have bad things said about them because they're just obnoxious. They're a poor testimony. But for living for Christ. Well, Paul is suffering physically in the sense that he's in a Roman prison. And he is reminding us that this is for the sake of his body, which is the church. So he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That is to say, uh, from the preceding verse that I just read, verses, he, he's not attaching any atoning value uh, to his sufferings that he's experiencing, that somehow he can propitiate God either for himself or someone else. That would be utter heresy, because Paul has already affirmed in Colossians 1 that God is propitiated and satisfied through the blood of his cross. And so he's not saying that at all, but he is reminding us that there is suffering that we identify with Christ. Why? Because whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. Now, in that context, he's talking about specifically the Jewish brethren. He's talking about that judgment that takes place at the end of the tribulation and how people, Gentiles, treated Jews will be uh, indicative of whether or not they were true believers or not. But in other passages, you know, for instance, when Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, wait a minute, Jesus is in heaven. But Jesus identifies with his body. Um, Whatever you do to the body of Christ or to a particular member of the body of Christ, you're doing unto Christ. And so in that sense, um, Paul had been persecuting Christ. And so Paul is now suffering. He's being persecuted. He's experiencing uh, thalipsis, tribulations, as it's often the same Greek word translated. Now, our Roman Catholic friends use this to say that we can, through our own suffering, uh, somehow make up for our sin. And then you have even these ascetics and mystics who... Um, say they, you know, experience special sufferings on behalf of 
the Roman church. You had this guy some years ago. I don't think he's alive anymore. And he used to say he'd bleed from his hands. And uh, this guy in the Philippines. And there's all kinds of wacko doctrine in the Philippines, especially with Roman Catholics. Um, you know, every year around Easter time, there are some people in the Philippines who are literally crucified. They they take some people and they nail them to a cross and they think that somehow they are making up what was lacking in Christ's death and their suffering and their being persecuted and experiencing anguish uh, somehow to make up for the sins of others. That's just sheer blasphemy and it's heresy. There's only one who can die and pay for your sin because <laughs> there's only one who had sinless blood, and that's the Lord Jesus. And so Paul will also say here in Colossians 2, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, very similar kind of language. You were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, um, non-reconciled. But when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he he makes us a promise that God has um, sins that were hostile to us. God has taken it out of the way, and he's nailed it to the cross. So when you are dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, this is Colossians 2.13, he made you alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us of all our transgressions. How did he forgive us of all of our transgressions? He said, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, this is a beautiful word picture that totally dismantles the argument that somehow Paul's sufferings or anyone else's suffering can deal with either their own sin or someone else's. And again, you know, he's talking about suffering for the church, for the body of Christ, but he's not saying in a way that our sin is forgiving. That would utterly contradict what he said earlier in chapter 1 and what he says here in chapter 2. A certificate of debt was a, a document, an instrument, a piece of parchment that was nailed to the outside of a Roman debtor's prison. And on it was the crime that the prisoner had committed. And then uh, at the bottom of the certificate of debt, one has actually been found. It's in the Rockefeller Museum outside of the uh, old city there in Jerusalem was what was necessary for that debt to be paid. And once the debt was paid, once the law was satisfied, the certificate of debt would be removed, and they would write on the certificate of debt and then stamp it with a Roman seal, the same thing that Jesus shouted from the cross, telestai. Um, it's a Greek word that means, we translated it as finished. Um, to telestai means paid in full. Also in the Rockefeller Museum, there in the city of Jerusalem in 1961, they dug up a first century tax office, and they found these ancient pieces of parchment that came from a Roman tax collector's office, and on it was lists of names, and next to each name, when their tax was paid, they wrote the same word that we take three in English to translate, and it meant paid in full. And so it's a picture here that God has taken us who were dead in our trespasses and sins, and he has forgiven us of our transgressions, and he did it by having canceled out the certificate of debt that was against us, 
because it, it showed how we had not kept God's word and God's law that were hostile to us and that it condemned us. And he took that certificate of debt and he nailed it to the cross. In other words, with Christ's own precious death, with his own sinless blood, he made a full payment on our behalf. So any interpretation of Colossians 1.24, and usually the key group that mistranslates it are Roman Catholics, because they, of course, do not believe in the sufficiency of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That's not to say that there are not Roman Catholics who do believe in the sufficiency, but on paper, the Roman Catholic Church denies the sufficiency of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to atone and pay and propitiate the wrath of God uh, to satisfy God's anger against us. Uh, They deny that, and that's what the Council of Trent was about, which was reaffirmed in Vatican I, Vatican II, and then the Cardinal of Colleges in 2010 affirmed it again, that this is a standing document. And if you've read the document, there are over 100 anathemas. Paul uses the word, by the way, anathema in the book of Galatians chapter 1, where he reminds us that if someone comes to you and preaches a gospel contrary to the one that we delivered to you, which is not really a gospel, he says he is to be anathema. And he says it twice, and it, it, it basically is a word that means to come under the judgment and condemnation of God Almighty. Really a strong statement, but because God loves people so much and doesn't want any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, um, he gives that strong word because he doesn't want people to hear the wrong message. They need to hear the saving message of God. Well, over 100 anathemas are found in the document the various canons from the Council of Trent, basically against Bible-believing Christians. And so one of the anathemas, uh, I, I can't quote it from heart, but it basically says, if you say that justification is on the basis of faith in Christ alone and that good works do not in some way uh, attribute to that justification before God, you are to be anathema. You are to be condemned. You are to be damned to hell. That's a direct affront to what Scripture says, and that's why you have Roman Catholics translating Colossians one twenty four out of the context of the book of Colossians. But again, you know, if you're the only one who can uh, translate or interpret the Bible because uh, it's not something that we as regular folks can understand, it's called the magisterium of the church— And the magisterium of the church says that they hold the official interpretation of Scripture. And that's, you know, so if they come up with something that you don't agree with, that's your tough luck because they're right. They're authoritative. Now, that's not to say that, you know, Christians have um, misinterpreted the Bible. Many times we do because we're not looking at it in the immediate context or the broader context of the whole of Scripture. But the Scripture does affirm that folks can understand the Bible, that we are to read it and to study it. That's why we never had Bibles growing up as Roman Catholics, because it didn't really matter what we read in the Bible. What mattered is what the church said about the Bible. And then someone came out with the living Bible, and the man who translated that put it in a very free-flowing language, and Catholics started finding it. And so they started reading the Bible, and some actually were converted and left the Roman church because of that. 
But with that said, they still affirm that no interpretation, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And they take that verse out of its context that Peter penned to say that you can't interpret the Bible for yourself. And so one of the um, emphases of the Protestant Reformation was the ability to understand Scripture, that we can read and understand Scripture. And so Paul is going to exhort us even here in Colossians to let the Word of God richly dwell within us, Colossians 3.16. All right, good question. Let's go to the next. All right, a listener says, they heard you in a message you gave on 1 Peter 3.19 say that Jesus died and went on a preaching mission to the angels. Uh, This listener is having a hard time understanding this conclusion simply from the verse. Could you please explain the basis for this conclusion and uh, point him to a specific sermon on this? Yes. So if you go to um, searchthescriptures.org and you go under uh, tools, I think it's browsing, and you can do by scripture and you click on by scripture and you'll see all the different books and you can go to this particular passage of scripture that will help you to understand all that it means. It says here in 1 Peter 3 and verse 18, and by the way, I also preached this sermon backwards from my series on Genesis 6. I also preached it in a series I did once on the book of Jude. I think I preached a number of messages just on that short little book of Jude. in 20-something. 20-some messages, and so... Um, Second Peter, uh, chapter two, the book of Jude, those are parallel chapters along with this chapter in Genesis six really serve as divine commentary when you, uh, put them all together. And so it says for Christ also died for sins once for all the just that's him for the unjust. That's us. Why did he do that? So that here's a reason. So that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So notice, first of all, what the verse doesn't say. And again, I have an hour-long sermon on this, but I'm only going to take a couple of minutes, but I'm directing you to 1 Peter 3, uh, 18 to 22. I think that's probably how I broke it up. No, I I would have broken it up probably verses 17 to 22, or maybe I preached 17 and 18 and then 18 to 22. But listen to that section of 1 Peter 3. Uh, But we're told that when Christ died, He was put to death in the flesh, but it doesn't say, but made alive in the flesh. Now, he was made alive in the flesh on the third day. And, of course, he's going to affirm that in verse 22, that we can make an appeal to God for a good conscience. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So Peter's not denying the bodily resurrection. He's going to affirm that. But he's saying that when Jesus was put to death in the flesh, he was made alive in the spirit in which, in which what? In which while he was in the spirit, 
he went and made proclamation. It's the Greek word keruso. It means to proclaim a message to to the spirits now in prison. Now, there was a fellow by the name of uh, Clark Pinnock who turned out to be a flaming liberal by the time he died. And he said that Jesus went on a preaching mission between his death and resurrection to give people a second chance to be saved uh, after they had died. Uh, That cannot be true. Again, sometimes while you don't know what a scripture means, you know what it doesn't mean. One of my grandsons called me yesterday, and he said, Granddad, I've got this assignment from Hebrews 6, and we're trying to understand what it means. And, of course, I, I reminded him that his mother wrote a paper on it when she was at Liberty University, and because she called me one day and asked me for my notes, and I know my son wrote a honors thesis on it when he was at Liberty University, and I said, I've got his honors thesis in my library. You should read it, Jack. It would be really helpful to you. But I said, um, so he said, I understand there's three interpretations. Some are saying in Hebrews 6, you can lose your salvation. Some are saying these are people who are never saved. And some are saying that this is a warning to scare the death out of true believers. He said, what do you think, Granddaddy? And I said, well, first of all, sometimes you don't know what a passage means, but you can say what it doesn't mean. And you know what it doesn't mean. You know it cannot refer to someone who is saved and lost their salvation. So we went through some passages that spoke of the eternal security of the believer, that once you're saved, you're saved forever. And we looked at a number of ways in which That argument can be made either by a direct promise, like he that believes in the Son has eternal life, not will have, but has. So most people think eternal life is something you get when you die, but according to the Scriptures, eternal life is a relationship with God. Jesus defined it in John 17 when he said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's knowing God in a personal way. Now, all men know of God's existence, You know, approximately 1% of the 7.6 billion people on the planet say they are atheists. They're not. They're just liars. There is no such thing as an atheist, biblically speaking. That's why you never really see the apostles trying to prove the existence of God. They just state, is it a fact? No, all men know God exists. How? Well, through creation, Romans 1, through conscience, Romans 2. Uh, You know, there there are many uh, ways in which... You know, the heavens are declaring the glory of the Lord. So there is no such thing as an atheist. Uh, That's why God devotes one half of one verse to atheism in the Bible. Uh, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Actually, twice, because the verse is repeated twice in Psalm 14 and again, again in Psalm 50. In either case, we know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you can lose your salvation. Why? Because it affirms our eternal security. Well, I know what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean like Clark Pinnock and a lot of people in the emergent church taught that people have a second chance to be saved. And now the emergent church, I don't even know where they are. They seem to have just fallen off the radar, somewhat non-existent. Um, But it doesn't mean that because it's appointed for a man to die once, and after this comes the judgment. And Jesus, of course, in Luke 16, tells a parable on hell. And when he tells that parable on hell, he uses an illustration of a rich man who dies. And some, I should say, parenthetically would say that this is not a parable, that this is an actual case 
Um, it doesn't change the meaning of it. And the reason they would say that, by the way, is because they would say, well, this is the only parable that there is where someone is actually named. Well, again, it changes nothing in terms of the interpretation and application. But this rich man dies and he goes to hell, not because he's rich, but because he's an unbeliever. And the poor man, and of course, he's telling this against the Pharisees who were lovers of money in verse 14 of the same chapter. They were rich men and they loved money. And in either case, and by the way, being rich doesn't make you an unbeliever. Many of God's choicest servants are rich people uh, that are found in Scripture, like Abraham or David and Solomon and other people like them. Joseph of Arimathea, who was prophesied to be uh, involved in the burial of Christ, a rich man will be in his death, and he was a rich believer. With that said, he's in hell because he's an unbeliever, and Jesus makes it very, very clear that um, besides all this, he says in 1626, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over here from you may not be able to, and none may cross over from there to us. So it's a fixed spot. When a man dies and goes to hell, he'll never get out of hell. When a man has been in hell a hundred billion years, he won't have 10 seconds less to spend there. It's forever. Now, God doesn't want people to go to hell. And if someone goes to hell, it's their own fault because they didn't respond to the revelation God gave. God gives revelation first in creation and conscience. And some would argue his compassion or care that he shows to all men. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. That's a handiwork of God. That's God's care for people. God takes, the Bible says, twice over in the book of Ezekiel, no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't say, oh, yeah, that we get to send these people to hell. I made this guy to go to hell. That's not the God of the New Testament or the Old Testament. God has compassion on the loss. God's not trying to keep people away from the plan of salvation, but to reveal it. And so if someone is lost and their heart is open and responsive to the truth that God has given, the biblical principle is light responded to brings more light. I have a little booklet that's available on Amazon. I don't make any money on it, uh, so I'm not here to sell books, but it's available on Amazon or through Search the Scriptures, and it deals with the state of the unevangelized. Sometimes people ask the question, what about people who've never heard the gospel? And what about that native in Papua New Guinea? He's never seen a Bible, never heard the name of Jesus. How can God send him to hell for having never believed in a Savior in whom he's never heard? Well, there's an answer to that question. And briefly, light responded to brings more light. And so when a man dies and goes to hell, he's in a fixed place. When Jesus describes the judgment that comes at the end of the tribulation, and if you were with me in my series on the Revelation, we went through five different judgments that are still in the future. People think, well, there's just one big judgment. Actually, there's a number of judgments that are going to unfold uh, in the future. And so when Jesus deals with uh, different groups of people uh, during the time of the tribulation, he says, these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's uh, Matthew 25 46. And the Greek word for eternal is ionion. 
And it's the same word that's used in 1 Timothy to describe the eternal God. So to say that God is not eternal is to say that heaven is not eternal is to say that hell is not eternal. You can't do that. So you know right off what it doesn't mean because God doesn't contradict himself. The scripture is inspired without error. And so a good rule of thumb is that if you're struggling with a passage as to what it means, then you interpret what is unclear in light of what is very clear. So I told my grandson yesterday, I said, Jack, there was over 150 times in the New Testament where God affirms our eternal security. There are 10 passages, depending on how you count them, because some are, you know, a repeat in another book. There are 10 passages in the New Testament that at first glance seem to indicate that you can lose your salvation. Well, if God inspired the Bible without error, and that's what Jesus taught, down to the smallest jot and tittle, um, he uses uh, two Aramaic slash Hebrew words that come through in the Greek New Testament as well to describe the smallest mark of a letter and the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. A jot or a yod, it looks like an apostrophe in English. It's the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And he also speaks of a mark that would distinguish a couple of different Hebrew letters, like the difference between the letter Rosh that looks kind of like a backwards, kind of like a backwards R, but capitalized without the stick, in uh, a Daleth. And the difference would be like between the English letter O and the English printed letter Q, just one little slash. And Jesus said the scriptures inspired down to the smallest letter into the smallest dash or stroke of the pen. That's how inspired Jesus believed the scriptures were. So I said to him, if God inspired the whole Bible, and he said over 150 times, clearly, cleanly, you can never, ever, ever lose your salvation. You interpret what's unclear in light of what is clear. So for Clark Pinnock to say, well, he's going to preach to people who didn't hear the gospel and he's giving them a second chance. It just mitigates against all kinds of scripture where God has plainly spoken. No, he goes in his spirit between his death and before early Sunday morning when he comes out of the grave in his resurrected body, as prophesied, he would be raised on the third day on a preaching mission. And I walked through this in great detail from Genesis 6, also from the book of Jude. There are different kinds of fallen angels in the Bible. There are fallen angels. We call them demons. Remember, it wants everything God made was good, and all the angels he made was good. But one of his uh, chief leaders amongst the angels, because they're organized and ranked on both sides, his name was Lucifer. Now, most of the time we think of the word Lucifer as an evil, scary word, but that was actually his pre-fall name, and it means son of the morning. So you can either translate the word directly as Lucifer, like the King James does, or you can interpret the meaning of the name. Uh, you're in the same place. But this son of the morning, Lucifer, fell, and when he fell, he convinced a third of the angels to rebel against him. Those are demons. Now, you can take all the demons in the world. So we got two-thirds holy angels, one-third fallen angels. You can take all the fallen angels, and you can categorize them into one of three realms. Some fallen angels have freedom to wage war in the heavenly realms. And so Paul speaks in Ephesians 6 that we wage war 
not against flesh and blood, meaning our real battle, Ephesians, is not between Jews and Gentiles like you think. The real battle, the real enemy, is the devil and his demons. We wage war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and evil forces that are at work in the invisible realm. And if you want to see a visual example of what that might look like, God visualizes it for us in Daniel 10, where you see this uh, battle that is explained that's going on, and you begin to realize, man, these things are really like organized, these these fallen demonic persons. Uh, they're over countries and regions, and it's really a powerful chapter of Scripture, and I have a whole sermon on that in my series on Daniel. Um, with that said... Uh, That's one category. They can wage war against us. Another category of angels are those who are in the abyss. And the abyss is a place where you have a demon that is committed um, beyond what God wanted, gave them freedom. Because even, again, you know, Luther used to say, and he was correct, the devil is God's devil. That is to say, um, God is over everything. It's not like, well, Satan's got all this freedom. No, God is over everything. But like humans, demons are persons. They're not made in the same way as we are, where we are uh, someday even going to judge the angels, um, the the holy angels of God. Somehow God is going to involve the church in the judgment of holy angels. And that's Paul's argument. He says, you can't even settle disputes among you in the church, and you you take your brother to the court, and you sue him, and you let pagans deal with your problems. He said, you know, isn't there one wise guy, one wise man among you who can, you know, solve these problems? Don't you know that someday you're going to judge angels? If you can judge angels, you ought to be able to deal with disputes in the church. And so... Um, there are angels that uh, who have gone beyond what they've done, and they are in a place called the abyss. And the abyss, by the way, is going to be open someday. The book of Revelation teaches that. And there are going to be demons beyond number. How many angels did God originally create? It appears to be in the hundreds of billions. And I walk through an argument of that in our series on Revelation. But there's a lot, whatever the number is, tons of them. And they're going to be released across the planet during the time of the Great Tribulation for a short period of time. But when an angel is in the abyss, they have no freedom to wage war. So if you remember when uh, they went to Gennesaret, to Kersey, if you go to Israel today, and I've been there with some of you who are listening to me, and it's a Class A geographical location. You can actually see the tombs, and there's only one place in the whole Sea of Galilee where a herd of 2,000 swine could have ran directly down the hill into the sea. There's only one place. Now, there's a road that's cut at the bottom, but there's only one place in the whole Sea of Galilee where that could have taken place. So that's a Class A geographical spot. But if you remember, they pled, don't send us into the abyss. Why? Because if they went into the abyss, they would have no more freedom to wage war. And obviously what they had done was not enough to send them into the abyss, and so... There was an immediate dealing with them as they went into the pigs, and they were the pigs were drowned in the sea. Um, but then there's another class of angels that God describes as being in eternal bonds. They have no freedom at all. 
and they are in a domain. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things, once for all, that the Lord, I'm reading from Jude 5, not chapter 5, there's one chapter, so when you come to a single chapter of the Bible, you usually don't say, well, Jude 1, 5, because there's only one chapter. You say just Jude 5, if you're new to the Bible, and many are. Now I desire to remind you, Though you know all things, once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels, who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So there are a class of angels that are in eternal bonds, never ever to be freed. And Peter describes these angels in Second uh, Peter chapter 2, and he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and it's the Greek word Tartarus. And so it's not the word Gehenna, which is the word that's used to describe the final resting place in the lake of fire. If a man dies today, he doesn't go to hell. If he dies lost, he goes to Hades. And that is a place of judgment that will ultimately be cast into Gehenna, the lake of fire. But it's a miserable place, and it has many similar characteristics as Gehenna, the lake of fire is. But there's a special compartment in hell of a group of angels who committed, God committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And if he didn't spare Noah and so forth, so as he thinks about these angels, he thinks about Noah because... um, there's a, it happened in the same time frame. So if angels did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just like just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them indulged in gross immorality and went after strange fat flesh, and they're exhibited as an example and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So he's making a parallel, just like the people in Sodom did something that was perverted. Uh, they abandoned the way God made them naturally to function, and they did that which is unnatural. Uh, they abandoned the way God created them. So there was a group of angels that abandoned the way God created them, and they're described in Genesis 6. Uh, angels, when they appear in the Scripture, they always appear in male bodies. There's no female angels anywhere in the Scripture, and they left their proper domain and that they engaged with uh the daughters of men, the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, uh, engaged with the daughters of men. And the sons of God is a term that's used to describe, like in Job, uh, angels. And so there was a group of fallen angels who left their proper domain, and they're in eternal bonds. So three classes, and Jesus went to preach to them. Why did he go preach to them? Because they were the only angels who had not been aware of his victory. And God wanted to make it clear that Christ was sovereign and victorious in heaven and above and even in the tightest cavern of hell, in a place called Tartarus, and that he was sovereign over all. Anyway, good question, but I've got an hour and 10-minute long sermon on that if you want to really delve into it. But it is so clear when you put Scripture together. Now, there are some people 
since around 1600 who said, well, that's not what it means. And he's talking about the godly line of Seth. And so it's just sheer nonsense. They have to um, ignore so many passages of Scripture. It is so clear. And the interpretation I just gave you is what the church fathers taught. And so in the ancient creeds, it talks about Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He descended into hell. And then on the third day, he was raised from the dead. What are they talking about? They're talking about his descent into hell, not to pay for sins, as Roman Catholics falsely taught, because Roman Catholics falsely taught that. No, on the cross, he shouted, it is finished, it's paid in full. Uh, He didn't have to descend into hell to pay for sin. Uh, So in some churches, they take that phrase out of the Nicene or Apostles' Creed. There's about four or five versions of the Apostles' Creed. They're basically all read the same. But they've taken that phrase out because they don't want to identify themselves with the uh, wrong teaching of Roman Catholics. But it is taught by the church fathers that Christ went on a preaching mission to a group of angels to share his victory. All right. We've got about three minutes left. Uh, Time for a quick question. Uh, Devion from Pineland, South Carolina, would like to know, do I tithe off of gross or net gain of my business? Well, um, you know, let's say you have a business and you make widgets and uh, you sell $100,000 in widget widgets, and then you have to pay your expenses uh, to make the widgets, the machines you have to buy and all that, and, and then you get paid a salary. That's what you tithe off of. Uh, you tithe off of the profit. That's called the increase. So what God puts in your hand, this is your money, that's what you tithe off of, just like if there's an employee who you pay as part of your expense, and that money is put in his hand. If he's a believer, he ties off of that. So anyway, we're out of time, but as always, it's great to be here. But let me just give a, a word of encouragement to you who maybe have just found us, 88.7. We broadcast on the Internet 24-7 around the world at net. And we also broadcast our services. Our live streaming is not something new. Uh, We've been doing it for many years now at Community Bible Church. But it might be new to some of you listening and you don't have a place to go on Sunday. Uh, I will be at the Community Bible Church pulpit this Sunday. In fact, the topic will be I'll be dealing with how to overcome uh, fear and anxiety and how we as Christians, we of all people should be joyous during this time. We need to be displaying a different spirit, not just to the unbelievers, but also to our children, that we believe that God is in control. I mean, what's the worst thing that could happen to you from a a virus? Well, the worst thing that could happen is you could die. But for the Christian, the worst thing that can happen to you is the best thing that happens to you, because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But if you don't have a place to visit, go to communitybiblechurch.us. You can click on the watch now, or you can type in communitybiblechurch.us forward slash live. Either one will bring you directly to the broadcast. As Rick mentioned earlier, we're on Apple and Roku. You can also live stream us through Facebook. Most people do through the website. And uh, there'll be some things that um, we'll keep doing. We'll be baptizing new believers this Sunday in chlorinated water so they have nothing to fear and there'll be live music and live preaching and i hope you'll be there live as well invite your friends many are open during these days like never before god bless you as you walk with jesus christ 